Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, the book of Titus. It's, uh, you'll find it in the New Testament just before Hebrews, just after First and Second Timothy. And as you're turning, just a, a quick story is when we told our girls finally that, that we were actually coming to Dothan a couple months ago, uh, we told them we were going to buy a house right beside Chuck E. Cheese, or rather, I told them we were going to buy a house right beside Chuck E. Cheese, and Whitney said, don't tell them that. Uh, but they are excited to be closer uh, to Chuck E. Cheese and uh, in Dothan. Of course, we told them we can't go there every week. Uh, it's it's going to be sparing. If you go to the mall and you're looking for a store, or a particular type of store, what do you often do if you don't know where that store is? You go to the mall map, the schematic of the mall, and, and there's an important little arrow that says what? You are... Here, you're here, and and then you look and you try to find where the store is that you want to go to, and you locate it, and then you turn left or right. Uh, This is what the Apostle Paul gives to Titus in this little letter, uh, this young pastor that Paul left on the island of Crete. He gives him this letter and says, you're here, here's what you do. Here's the portrait of a healthy church. This is what a church should look like as you're edifying and building up the the churches, young Titus, here are some things to think about and walk through. The question that Titus, I'm sure, asks is, how how do I actually do this? So in chapter 1, Paul covers the importance of healthy leadership. He talks about the qualifications for elders. Then in chapter 2, he outlines what healthy relationships look like within the church, and even discipleship, what that looks like within the church. Lastly, here in chapter 3, Paul turns his attention to healthy relating to pagans or unbelievers or outsiders, those who are not of the faith. And this is where we will pick up today. Paul's overall thought is this. A healthy church should entail these things, Titus. The running theme throughout is this. The gospel compels godliness. Or the good news produces good works. Or we could say it this way, orthodoxy, right, belief, produces orthopraxy, right, practice. We should never get the cart before the horse. The gospel comes first and then flows good works out of the gospel. A couple of key questions before we get into the text. How do you treat people? Your boss? Your spouse? Your kids? Your neighbors? Your kid's ball coach, and here's a tricky one, the umpire. How do you treat the umpire? What would these people say about your character? In turn, how does that reflect your belief in the gospel? What would they say about your character, and how does that reflect your belief in the gospel? I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 11, but I'm only going to cover uh, through verse 8. So please read with me. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, 
our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Father, thank you that you did not leave us in the dark. You gave us revelation. You told us who you are and who we are and what you require. And more than that, you gave us a Savior and you have poured out the Spirit on us. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and descend on us, that you would teach us, that you would enliven our hearts and enlighten our minds, that we may be edified and built up as your church, your people. Lord, we need you. We love you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. As a kid growing up in black Alabama, one of my favorite things to do during the summertime was to ride my four-wheeler with my friends on dirt roads all over the place for hours. And uh, we would do that and climb hills uh, and, and do all sorts of crazy things. But during the summertime, if you know, here in the south, you've got a lot of fruit trees that are bearing fruit and, and brambles and bushes. And so we would stop often and, and pick plums and just sit and eat plums until we're almost sick. We would pick blackberries and eat those. I remember one particular year, there was a tree that that I'll never forget. But that tree was not beside a road. It was not in a pasture. It was actually in our yard. It had been a volunteer tree. It grew up on its own. It was a pear tree. Uh, And that tree every year would produce some pears, and we would enjoy it. But this one particular year, it had an abundance of pears, I bet we picked over 150 pears from that one tree. It was overloaded with pears to such a degree that the limbs were breaking. It couldn't sustain the weight of the fruit on that tree. It was a beautiful sight, and it's a marker in my mind of a tree bearing fruit to such a degree. And we couldn't eat it all. We had to give it away by buckets. We were giving pears away every day, every week, so they wouldn't go bad. This is a picture uh, I propose to you today that God's plan for your life is that you bear fruit, is that we all bear fruit as believers, that we bear fruit, much fruit, for His glory and our good. This fruit, though, is produced by the rich conditions of the gospel. When the conditions are right, when they were right for that tree, that tree bore good fruit. I want to propose today the conditions are right for us as believers, for us in Christ. We have the necessary conditions to bear much fruit for God's glory and for our good and the good of our community. 
To put it another way, when your mind and heart are fixed on the realities of the glorious gospel, good works will naturally flow from your life. Another different way to state it is knowing God's grace enables you to extend God's grace to others. Knowing grace enables you to extend grace. And this is Paul's argument right here in this passage. Let's walk through it together. Verse 1, right off the bat, Paul exhorts Titus, remind the believers to submit to rulers and authorities. Key word, remind. It's already been stated. So Titus is here to remind what's already been stated. Submit to rulers and authorities. Now, as we all know, Roman rule was a, a pagan presuppositions. They worship pagan gods. And so, even so, Paul and Titus says, be submissive to all authority. This is the same for us. We're to exercise obedience to authority here in our land, in Dothan, Houston County, Alabama, United States of America. Whatever authority that we have over us, God has appointed that authority. This is why Paul in Romans 13, 1 and 2, he says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This is important. This is an important principle for the people of God, that we are to strive to be citizens, not only of God's kingdom, but of this government here we are in. We have feet planted in two separate kingdoms, and we are called to submit to God first, but also to the authorities that he has planted around us. But here in Titus 3.1, Paul goes a step further. He says, be ready for every good work. He doesn't just say, okay, obey the laws, do your duty, and that's it. And we can stop short there. But I believe the gospel pushes us forward to that second mile principle that Jesus spoke of. In doing good, we want the flourishing of Dothan, Alabama. We want the flourishing of Houston County. We want to do all we can to support, to help, to encourage our leaders and those who are working toward a good end in our society. Paul continues on in verse 2 to speech. He says, speak evil of no one. The NIV says to slander no one. That's, that's the word here is slander. The NAS says to malign no one. And this basically means to speak against someone in such a way to harm their character. What does that look like? Just a few examples. One is a degrading way of speech. You'd say, that guy's a complete idiot. Well, do you have authority to say that? Should you say that? That is very degrading speech that God says here in His Word. Cut it out. Motive assigning. This is, this is something that we can fall into easily. Here's an example. She did that because she was jealous. Well, you assumed a motive and then you assigned it and you spoke it out loud so the person hearing you is taking in everything that you're hearing much like you're painting a picture of that other person and that is what they see. That's why slander is so, so dangerous. Or last example is repeating unverified info. Well, I heard that Billy Bob stayed out drunk all night. Well... That's hearsay. Again, you are damaging, you are maligning somebody else's character by hearsay. And Paul says to Timothy, don't 
let the people do this. Verse 2, he goes on, avoid quarreling. Actually, in verse 9, it says, avoid foolish controversies. And he continues on. Paul is not saying that we should not confront sin or we should not confront false teachers. In fact, if you look over to chapter 1, he talks about false teachers. In verse 13, he says, Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So Paul is not saying we should be willy-nilly about the truth. No, he should, he's saying that we should be firm in the truth, but do it in such a way that is compelling and exemplifies the truth of God's gospel. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You hear that? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Why can we be gentle? Because it's God who's doing the work. We can continue to correct opponents. It says it right here, but we can be gentle in doing it in the same sense. Proverbs 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Proverbs 26, 17 is one of my favorites. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Just go grab a dog by the ears and you'll see what happens. This is what Paul is saying. Don't get into a quarrel. Stay away from quarrelsomeness. Back to verse 2, Paul gives the positive goal. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy. The NASB uh, is helpful here. It translates it as showing every consideration. We could say it as being other-centered. Looking out for others. Or we could say it this way, showing all in every way, in totality, gentleness, and consideration to all people, all types of people, not just people like us, but people that are hard to deal with in our lives. I know we deal with hard people, difficult people. I encourage you. God's called you in the gospel. We're going to see the gospel in just a minute. God's called you to flow into gentleness toward those folks. You see, what Paul envisions here is a healthy church filled with vibrant people who are displaying the gospel fruit in every direction. Overabundance of good fruit. And here's the deal. If you catch yourself following up disregard for authority or slander or quarreling or rudeness, if you catch yourself following that up after you've you've done that with the phrase, well, they deserved it. We've all done that, whether we've said it out loud or not. They deserved it. You need to see Paul's logic in this next section. Calvin says this, Thus we see that we must be humbled before God in order that we may be gentle towards brethren, for pride is always cruel and disdainful of others. Let's look at verse 3. Paul turns a corner. He says, four, four. He's, he's, he's anchoring his, his commands in an argument. Four, and Paul gives a bleak picture with, with seven characteristics of what the believers once were, what we once were. Let's look at them. Number one, foolish. Number two, disobedient. Number three, led astray. Number four, slaves to various passions and pleasures 
Number five, passing our days in malice and envy. Number six, hated by others. And number seven, hating one another. Whoa, that's bad news. What, what Paul is doing here is much like a jeweler when they bring back that, that black background, a dark background, and, and hold the diamond in front of it. it. It displays the diamond's beauty so well. So hearing the bad news helps us to rejoice when the good news comes. Paul is saying, this is who you were. Calvin says again, indeed, ignorance of our own faults is the only cause that renders us unwilling to forgive our brethren. They who have true zeal for God are indeed severe against those who sin, but because they begin with themselves, their severity is always attended by compassion. You hear that? Starting with yourself. Yes, you deal with sin, but it's with compassion. Why? Because you see it right here first. This is where it gets amazing. Paul says, he gives that little conjunction. I love the conjunctions. Ephesians 2 has a powerful one. This is a powerful one. But, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared. What he's saying is realize who you are, who you, where you came from, what God has done by sheer absolute grace brought you in because of His love and kindness. This word, loving kindness, is where we get our word philanthropy, brotherly love. The goodness and kindness of our Savior appeared. I really like John Stott's organization of this, this uh, tight, dense, beautiful section of the gospel. He gives the source of salvation. The source of salvation comes from God's heart, from God's love. We were talking about this in Sunday school, is that God's heart first moves forward to sinners. He takes that first beautiful step. He knows who we are. He knows how bad we are. He knows that we have committed cosmic treason. And yet his love says, I will save you. That's the source. The ground of salvation is... This is not by deeds done in our righteousness, but by the sheer mercy of God. Nothing we have done, are doing, will do, will earn our salvation or earn us being heirs of God Almighty. And then in verse 5, he turns the corner to the means of our salvation. What are the means? What are the ways in which we are saved? We're washed, we're regenerated. We're renewed by the Spirit of God. You think about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Paul is, is anchoring in to this same thought. This is what God has done. He has changed our hearts. He's taken away a heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. Paul is pulling in this Ezekiel 36 language of the unfathomable grace of God that refurbishes His people, reorients, empowers His people through the Holy Spirit. This word for renewal here is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19, 28. It's the new beginning or the new genesis or the new birth. And in verse 6, 
the Spirit was poured out on us lavishly because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. You know, early this morning I was praying. It was still dark and, and the rain was coming down and it was kind of a light rain. And we, we sort of envision sometimes the Holy Spirit is just a sprinkle or a likeness maybe. No, He was that 3.30 in the morning downpour. He is that for us. God has downpoured His Holy Spirit on His people. Just think about if you were to go out in that downpour, how quickly you would be drenched. That's what God has done with His Spirit in sending the Spirit. You are drenched in the Spirit. We are drenched in the Spirit. Therefore, walk it out. Walk in the power of the Spirit. Verse 7, Paul covers that beautiful doctrine of grace called justification. So that being justified by His grace, we might become sons and daughters, heirs of the King. What an astounding, action-packed, beautiful statement of the gospel right here in Titus. The goal of God's salvation is that we would be reconciled, that we would be no longer strangers and heirs, are no longer strangers to the covenant, but now heirs to the covenant, his sons and daughters whom he loves. Brothers and sisters, we are the children of God. We are the children of God. We are the children of Almighty God who has created all things. He has called us to Himself because of His love, His great love. Notice also what's in here. It's the work of the Trinity in our whole salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are here working together for us and for our salvation for the glory of God. So what? So what now? What a beautiful, what a beautiful story, we may say. Or, or if you're in here today and, and you're, you're searching, you're seeking, I encourage you, take time to look at this story, to gaze at it. If you're a believer, the so what is back in verse 3 to the 4. Verse 3, 4. He gives these ethical commands and he says, For this is what you were, and now you are in Christ. You were darkness, he says in Ephesians. Now you're light. Walk as children in the light. Notice the phrase in verse 8 and verse 14, that they may devote themselves for good works. This appears twice in this chapter. Then back in, in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul identifies God's people as those who are zealous for good works. Now we get nervous as uh, evangelicals, as Protestants, about talking about good works. Because we, 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 we're scared that we're going to apply those to our salvation. I want to encourage you. Paul uses this in the right sense. And I'm seeking to use it in the right sense in that your works are an outworking of the necessary, beautiful conditions of the gospel that flows into beautiful fruit in your life. Zealous for good works. You saw in verse 1 where God's church should be ready for every good work. You remember the words of our Lord in Matthew 5, 14-16. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
Think about God's grand story, creation. God created all of us, all human beings in his image. And then rebellion, the fall of man, thrown into sin and misery. And then redemption, what is God doing in redemption? He's reconciling us and he's making us new creatures. 2 Timothy 5, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. New creatures, the old has passed away, the new has come. And there's a new creation called the church, a new society, as we look forward to the consummation, the reconciliation of all things, the renewal of all things, when heaven and earth are one, finally. We live in the now, but not yet. We're now saved, not yet fully, but we are moving toward, through the power of the Spirit, that beautiful fruit of the grand kingdom that will be established here on this earth once and for all, when we will serve our Lord and our King. In effect, here Paul is saying, when you're tempted to rail at ungodly leaders or to quarrel with unbelievers or believers, when you're tempted to degrade others or speak divisive words, you need to take a time out, step back, think about the gospel, think about the sheer mercy and grace of God and where you've come from and where you are now. The Christian life is learning the wonder of the gospel and how this good news encourages us, builds us up, shapes us to continue to walk in holiness and in truth. You see, God did not speak evil of us, disdain us, or reject us. No, he had compassion and took action. We're called to look on God's action in our lives with wonder and awe and joy and naturally move into that, showing grace to others. I want to encourage you this morning. Two things you should see from this passage. One is the gospel provides forgiveness. We're going to fail. We're going to fall. We're going to sin. If you're in this room and you're discouraged about your battle against sin, don't give up. Be encouraged. The Lord Jesus loves you, and he's calling you continually to walk in his grace. But also it calls us, as we are forgiven, it calls us to push forward, to run with endurance the race that is set before us, and to produce that good fruit that gives God glory. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning. God desires each of you to live and to bear much fruit. He has rescued, regenerated, renewed you in the gospel. All that God has done in Christ are the necessary conditions to be bursting with fruit so that those around you may enjoy the sweetness of God and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Oh, Father. Thank you for such a grand and glorious gospel. More than that, thank you for your heart that though we were enemies of you, you call us friends. That though we were poor and without nothing, you call us and make us rich in you. That though we committed cosmic treason, you pardoned us through the work, the completed work of Christ on the cross. And I pray, as I've heard so many good stories about First Presbyterian and Dothan, I pray that you, O oh Lord, would continue to empower this church, each individual and the body together, to embody good fruit, to embody beautiful, fruitful lives, so that more and more people would come to know you and worship you with full hearts. Thank you for this moment. 
Thank you for all that you're doing, and I pray that you would encourage us all. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.